All right, so we're now kind of coming to our conclusion. In fact, we are coming to our conclusion of our study of covenant theology. We have been at this now for, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 weeks. And today I'd like to wrap, wrap everything up uh, for, basically we're covering the Mosaic Covenant today. We're covering that last, even though that's probably most central to our study. Um, but I want to do that. I've already argued for um, a particular thesis. So I want to do that so uh, we can wrap up today and then beginning on June 3rd, we will begin a brief series, probably a four-week series is what I'm uh, planning for, on biblical wisdom, what it is and how to find it. And I think that's particularly relevant to many of you uh, at this stage in life where decisions of career, decisions of marriage, decision of finances all come into play. Let's, we're going to look at biblical wisdom and, and what we can learn from the scripture about decision making regarding things that are not specifically commanded in scripture. But to recap where we're at and where we're going today, um, I've argued already the thesis, kind of that covenant theology is the framework of God's redemption. Um, I've already made this push that God's plan of salvation is progressively revealed in the historical covenants and the full revelation and accomplishment of that comes in the new covenant. That's why we can come today to the Mosaic Covenant is really kind of an add-on in the sense of um, I've already kind of made my push, my thesis, and tried to prove that to you. And we can see then how the covenant of, with Moses fits into that. But in this, we looked at the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. We took an excursus on the Noahic covenant. And then we spent two weeks on the Abrahamic covenant. And with that in mind, we're going to look at the Mosaic today, why, what it is and why it matters. But specifically, Rather than dealing with all of the myriad of questions regarding the Mosaic Covenant, I want to look at it through the lens of the big picture. This framework for God's redemption that I've already argued. This progressive revelation of the covenant of grace. And I want to essentially ask, how does the Mosaic Covenant uniquely announce, promise, and prepare, prepare and typify the redemptive plan of God in the Gospel? What role does it play in redemptive history? What is unique in it? What can it teach us about the gospel? And that's where I kind of want to conclude today. So with that in mind, let's handle a few first issues here as we begin to tackle this subject. Of course, I mentioned before the Mosaic Covenant is huge. It's huge in regards to theological study and debate. It's huge, even in the respect that it takes up the majority of our Bible, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. It takes up the majority of our Bible. The Old Covenant is frequently referenced in the New Testament and contrasted with the New Covenant. It's a major issue. Most of the disagreements and distinctions within the church have to do with the relation between Old Testament and New Testament. You look at any denomination, and you're going to find an issue that's related to this. We have baptism, of course. It's affected by this. We have the understanding of the law of God. I put here in parentheses the Sabbath, because that's where a lot of blood is spilt. Because 
<clears throat> the Sabbath is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. We have Roman Catholic controversies. They base a lot of, um, let's say, the priesthood, uh, some of their, their sacraments and, and uh, their, their manner of worship, they base it upon Old Testament texts. And so, our disagreements with Roman Catholicism, a lot of them have to do with this issue. Then we have various sects and cults, like the Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah Witnesses, there we go. Different cults, different uh, spinoffs of Christianity that interpret the Old Testament and its relation to the New in a distinct way. And so this is an important issue. The Mosaic Covenant is huge. But in this, let's remember the big picture. <clears throat> I have to say that at least once in every teaching and preaching. But <laughs> remember, the Mosaic Covenant is God laying the foundation and preparing for and typifying the arrival of Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. This is what I've already argued. But this is evident even on the surface of things. Like, think about how the sacrifices instituted in the Mosaic Covenant pointed to Christ. Think of how the priesthood pointed to His eternal priesthood. Think of how the tabernacle signified His presence in, with God's people. The Passover uh, also signified... Wow, okay. The Passover also foreshadowed the, the slaying of uh, the Lamb of God and the passing over the sins of His people. So, even before we get to the controversies, we can acknowledge that there's a lot of typology and preparation and play with the Mosaic Covenant. I hope that's understood. I hope that's a given when we approach this subject. But keeping this big picture in mind is also key to properly understanding the details. We understand the details in light of the big picture. Right? So with this, let's jump in and think about what's going on at the time. Mosaic Covenant. How does this come about? What's the historical situation? Well, at the end of Genesis, we see after Joseph, of course, is sold into slavery, rises to power in Egypt, eventually he brings Jacob, who is the heir of the Abrahamic promises, and the people of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, settle in Egypt, all 70 of Jacob and his household. And of course, from there we know that this, from the book of Exodus, the covenant people, this household, grow into a mighty nation under Joseph. Or a mighty people. Not particularly a nation yet. A mighty, a mighty people. Because of this, they are oppressed by Pharaoh, and God raises up a deliverer, Moses, and redeems them through signs and wonders. Moses, of course, being a type of Christ. He was, in a sense... Born of a virgin, he appears out of nowhere on the Nile when his mother tries to hide him, right? And he, he rises to power and spends a long time in preparation and then comes back and delivers them uh, through signs and wonders. He is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. 
But remember that God delivers them in order to give them the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham. He delivers them in order to fulfill his promises to Abraham. He delivers them so that they might worship. And in this, this is where the Mosaic Covenant comes into play. God enters a covenant into covenant with them before they enter that land. In many respects, they had become too much like Egypt. Not typifying or not walking in the steps of Abraham. Um, they were, essentially, had been conformed to the pagan nation and nations around them. And so God gave them His law. He gave him the, them the priesthood, the sacrifices, in order to conform their lives, to deal with their sin, and preserve His presence among them. That's kind of the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. To give evidence of the differences of people set apart for God. They were witnesses to Egypt and the nations that God was in their midst, that God was their God. They were to represent their God. Again, you can probably see some Adamic imagery coming back up here. You know, um, in the image of God, He made male and female. Adam was created, Adam and Eve were created to bear witness to the image of God and impressed upon um, uh, them at creation. And in the same way, Egypt, excuse me, Israel coming out of Egypt is recreated and is to image, following the law, image their creator and be a witness to the nations around them. And of course, the priesthood and the sacrifices are uh, kind of a, a, a post um, post-fall, post-lapsarian um, way of doing this, to deal with their sin. Because, of course, they live in a fallen world, unlike Adam. So, this is the historical situation. And I want to think about what is the essence of this covenant. What is the essence of this covenant? This is going to be a matter of discussion here for the next 10 minutes or so, but there is a lot of ink and blood spilled over trying to define the essence of this covenant. Let me kind of state what I believe and then defend that, and we'll come back to other views on that. But I will say that this is not a covenant like the covenant with Abraham, which is promise. Remember, we talked about this last week. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham doesn't um, walk through the pieces. God does. God takes upon himself the promises of Abraham to Abraham. But this covenant has this thread running through it that can be summed up with do this and live. Keep the commandments. Obey them. Show that you love me and others. Really encapsulates the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. 
Now, where is this taught? Well, let's look in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Somebody want to read that out loud, loud and clear? It's right on the screen. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Right. This, of course, precedes the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the details of the covenant. This is conditional. If you will obey, if you will keep the covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. Do this and live. Really? Let's look at this. A little bit further, Exodus 24, just a few chapters later. And Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. There's again this notion of do this and live, and the people agreeing to that. See this echoed in Leviticus 18. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Do this and live. And this is what the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 quotes as well. That if you take on the law, you are to live in accordance with with all that the law says. Well, a couple more passages here. Deuteronomy 11.26. Next generation here. Before they enter the promised land. See, I am setting before you today, God says, a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding to you to go after the gods that you have not known. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy, you see this long list of rules, and then at the, at the very end, Deuteronomy 28, 29, you see all the blessings and the curses detailed. If you obey, I'm going to do this for you. You're going to have lots of children. You're going to be rich. You're going to be plentiful. You're going to have wine and Milk that never run out. But if you disobey, I will bring all these curses upon you. And frighteningly, those curses came to bear in striking specificity. Yeah, wasn't sure I could say that this early in the morning. <laughs> so what, what happened, of course? We, we know what happened. Israel broke the covenant. The curses first came upon them in exile as God punished them. But eventually the prophet spoke of God divorcing Israel, like a marriage, and they were cut off permanently in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, uh, which of course followed the removal of the Spirit of God from the temple. Ichabod was written over the door. No glory is here. And 
the covenant with Israel is over. It came to an end. We see that even in the New Testament. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Hebrews also speaks of it being an inferior covenant, of not being able to accomplish redemption, of being a burden, a yoke that Israel was unable to bear. It is a bad thing in the New Testament, the, the Mosaic Covenant, in many respects. So, all of this has led to lots of debate in the Reformed circles over the nature of this covenant. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Presbyterianism, calls it a covenant of grace, differently administered. And even within Presbyterian circles, this is hotly debated. The New Testament does not look at it as anything gracious. And then you ask questions like, why was Israel punished? Why was Israel cast out of the land? And we're told repeatedly in the Old Testament, because they broke the covenant, how can you then say it's a covenant of grace? Very basic question. How is it a covenant of grace if the curses of the covenant came to, bore, came to bear on the nation of Israel? So, of course, as a Baptist, <laughs> um, I don't think the language of calling it a covenant of grace is accurate or helpful or faithful to the text of Scripture. However, I will say, I want to you know, not misrepresent them here. Um, well, I can, let, me, let me go back here. Some of them say, some Presbyterians, they will say, well, it has a works element in it. But because it promoted the purposes of the covenant of grace, because it pointed to Christ and administered salvation, that's why we call it a covenant of grace. John? Yep. Say, make these things work out, and I'll check back with you. If you're doing okay, then I'll liberate you from Egypt. Yeah. He, he reached in and yep. liberated them from Egypt, and he yep. said, now that I've liberated you, here's a good way to live. Yeah. And, and that's very graceful yep. for someone to, to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very important point. It's a very important point when we seek to apply the Ten Commandments in our day. Right. That redemption, I am the Lord your God who delivered you, precedes the obedience for sure. Um, I'm going to argue, though, that the Baptist position definitely recognizes and acknowledges that there are gracious elements in the covenant. But if we are to most specifically define the essence of the covenant, because it depended upon obedience at the end of the day, it is a covenant of works. 
That's what I'm going to argue. Because, again, God himself did not take upon the responsibility of seeing its terms through. Um, It was placed upon Israel to obey. But in this respect, others call it a mixed covenant. Many within the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, um, I don't think that they can adequately hold to the Westminster Confession when they hold this view, but they claim that they can. Um, I disagree with that. Regardless, they call it a mixed covenant with both gracious and works elements in it. You can't really typify, uh, uh, not typify it, label it as one or the other. Others, and maybe kind of derivatives of this mixed covenant view, see it as a republication of the Adamic covenant of works. So the essence of it is a covenant of works. You have three views in this. We have strict and actual. What do I mean by that? Some would say that God gave the Mosaic covenant as an actual reissuing of the covenant of works so that man could, in theory, have attained eternal life by perfect obedience to it. Salvation by works. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, they would say it a little bit differently, but you're absolutely right. And dispensationals would as well. They would say, oh, yeah, see, in the Old Testament, salvation was by works. In the New Testament, it's by, it's by grace. Some see this republication as just, uh, this is the second one, this mix with a works element. This is characteristic of where I graduated from seminary, Westminster Seminary, California. Michael Horton, David Van Drunen. Um, uh, those men who have argued uh, that they try to follow the Westminster Confession and say it is a covenant of grace at its core, but there was added to it a works element. That This works element was added on top of it. And this works element is the Adamic covenant of works typified. It's another view. The Baptist view um, is more... Remember, I made the argument that the historical covenants are typological. They point to the covenant of grace. They prepare for it. They reveal it. And so really, the essence of it doesn't matter to us. Um, We don't get caught up on whether it's a covenant of grace or a covenant of works, most specifically, because it's earthly and temporal anyway. Yes. Yeah, so the Baptists would answer it this way. Um, 
it was administered through promise. The Presbyterians would say it's administered through the historical covenants. There's not a whole lot of difference there, except when you get to baptism. <laughs> um, it's very, very similar. In fact, John, we talked about this at lunch this week. Um, it's, at the end of the day, it is somewhat similar, but it has ramifications when you say, okay, is the new covenant administered like a covenant of grace, like the old covenant, covenant of grace? And when you do that, you, you are led to a more Presbyterian infant baptism position. So... I've already talked about that. Hopefully you guys are, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, you can. I, I, that's why it was so inferior to live under the Old Covenant and why the, the mystery now has been revealed that was kept hidden for ages, we read in the New Testament. So, sorry, my phone's blowing up. Make sure it's not somebody needing a ride. So, yeah, administered versus revealed. Um, we do believe that the covenant of grace was administered in the Old Covenant. We don't believe that the historical covenants were themselves that administration. If that makes sense. Because if we say that, then that sets the standard for how they're administered in the New Covenant, which means believers and their children, but not only that, but the land of Israel as well um, is now still part of the New Covenant. And we would dis- and the nation as well. Theonomy, theocracy, all of that goes together, in my opinion. In our opinion. If you, you can't just say believers and their children, but deny the fact that, oh, well, Abraham was also promised physical land. Does that continue? And then you have this nation law. That, that, does that continue as well? We, we see consistency here. You've got to take it all or nothing. That's a different question. That's a different question. Yeah. Now to preserve your yeah. status, you have to get it together. Yeah. It reminds me of the Protestant denominations where they're not five point Calvinists. They, you know, they sort of say, "Well, when you backslide, that means you're no longer saved." Yep. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. But that yeah. No. No. Um, I, this is key. Actually, it's a huge issue. I'm not going to get into it, but it's key when we interpret the Mosaic Covenant. Because there is an obedience element here. We've already acknowledged that. If you call it a covenant of grace, us Baptists say, how in the world can you not bring that obedience element into the new covenant? Cody, you and I have talked about this. And many Presbyterians do, exactly. And and, and we have concerns whether that that distorts law and gospel. because the new covenant is not like the covenant of old, which they broke. The new covenant is, I will put my laws within you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. Those promises were not part of the old covenant. Those promises are God himself ensuring our preservation um, and, and um, salvation in that covenant. Right. It seems also different than the Abrahamic covenant where God's the one that walks through pieces. Right? Well, the Mosaic covenant is different than that. 
Yeah, and that's Paul's argument in Galatians 3. He brings in the law, and he says, that doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God. God gave it to Abraham by promise. And he's likening the new covenant to the Abrahamic covenant, which is, which is why, again, which is closely related to the doctrine of infant baptism, because they equate those two. Um, we would agree with him on that. The new covenant is like the Abrahamic covenant. It's by promise. It's received by faith. It's not through obedience like the Mosaic covenant was. It is the paradigm for the new covenant in many respects, but ultimately we would say this is promise and then new covenant is fulfilled. And because of that, there's different administration. Let's dive into this a little bit further. Let's define this more particularly. And here, I'm moving off of this right here. It's typological, but it's also a republication. That's what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that the Mosaic Covenant is a typological republication of the Adamic Covenant of Works. That was a mouthful. Each one of those words is very, very important. It is not a covenant of obedience for salvation. And this is where the Jews misunderstood. They sought to establish their own righteousness. God called them to obey. Okay, we're going to obey. We're going to earn our salvation. It's not a covenant of obedience for salvation. This is where the term typological really comes into play. It is a covenant of obedience bound up with life and blessing in the land. You were to obey to stay in the land and receive God's blessing. Earthly, temporal, physical blessings like health and provision and safety from your enemies. If you want those things, you got to obey, which, you know, think about it. This is what the health and wealth gospel gets. They get this and they bring it into our age. And they deny the typological aspect and they say, if, if you want long life, if you want prosperity, name it and claim it, believe it, you've got to obey. They get this, but they don't get how Christ fulfills and changes this. So it's typological covenant of obedience that's concerned with life and blessing in the land, but it was meant to recall the original covenant of works with Adam. That's what it's invoking. That's what it's echoing. That's what it's bringing to the surface. Right? It's, it's like, um, this isn't, what happened with Adam isn't mere mythology. Um, God says, I'm going to show you how real this is. I'm going to redo it in a typological sense. So, for example, the Mosaic Covenant was given to show Israel and all humanity that no man can be justified by the works of the law. We read of that in Galatians 3. The law came to show us that we're sinners. That it came to confirm our Adamic identity. Does that make sense? It came to confirm to us in real time in history that we are fallen children of Adam. So that we look at the law and we realize, oh my goodness, I am a child of Adam. I am sinful. 
His purpose was to bind up everything under sin so that Israel would seek a Savior. When you realize your Adamic identity, you realize you can't work righteousness with your own hands, you cry out to God for help. You look for a Savior. The covenant was to demonstrate that they couldn't keep the law any more than Adam could. That's why it was a burden. That was why it was, it was a yoke upon their shoulders. They were meant to fail at it. That's why they had the sacrifices, you know, um, because they failed so much. But it was to demonstrate that they couldn't keep the law of God. I can't help but think of how, you know, relevant this is to 21st century Americans. We think we can do anything, you know, right? More power to you. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. Just buck up, man up, and, and take care of it yourself. That's the American way. Well, God gave them this law so they would realize, oh my goodness, I can't work righteousness with my own hands. Thus to drive them to Jesus Christ. Um, we only have 10 minutes, so I'm going to move real quickly here, but I would just say, I was going to have us read this, but this is the story of the rich young ruler. I'm sure you guys all remember that. Um, he comes to Jesus and says, what shall I do to, uh, for eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Um, and he quotes two or three of them. And it says, and the young man says, oh, I've done all these. And then God, uh, Jesus says, well, then go and sell everything that you own, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And he walks away sad because he had many possessions. Jesus is essentially telling the rich young ruler that the only way to eternal life is perfect obedience to the law. He isn't saying that so that the man would actually try to obey and this comes out when he says, no one is good but God alone. Jesus is saying, <laughs> you call me good teacher, are you so sure? I mean, you think that man can work righteousness with his own hands? His purpose was to drive this man outside of himself so that he might seek a refuge, so that he might be like the publican who beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So it recalled, it, re it represented the original law of creation, the covenant of works. And the same is true of this rich young ruler it is for Israel. In fact, the rich young ruler is just a parable of who Israel really is. Oh, I can keep that law. Of course, yeah, I'll attain to eternal life. Seeking to establish their own righteousness. They rejected it, rejected the righteousness that comes from God. So again, let me move quick so we can get some, to some questions here. Here's how the typology works here. It recalled and reminded Israel of God's demand for perfect obedience, as well as Adam's disobedience in the covenant of works. It was, in a sense, Adam recreated. God's son, Israel's called God's son, placed in God's place, the land, promised land is often spoken of in terms of a garden, like the Garden of Eden. Under God's rule, do not eat of this tree. Now here's, you know, 644 commands or whatever it was 
um, of God's rule. And not only that, but they were given every single motivation under heaven for obedience and threatened with cursings for disobedience. It's like, you know, me coming to you and say, if you'll just do these few things, um, I'll put a million dollars in your bank account every month and I will make sure that you live to 120 years old. I will make sure that nothing bad ever happens to you. You never get sick. You never use a lo- lose a loved one. Blah, 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 blah. All of these promises, earthly, giving them every motivation to obey. And also saying, oh, but if you disobey, instead of you know, that million dollars, I'm going to actually require you to pay me. And I'm going to curse your children. And I'm going to curse your crops. And I'm going to curse your body. You would think like, oh my goodness, all right, I'm going to do what this guy tells me to do. But that's, what's, that's what's going on. He's giving them every motivation temporally to obey and everything to discourage their disobedience to prove to them that they can't do it even with every motivation in the world. Because they needed a righteousness of someone else. Because they needed their hearts to be circumcised. Because they needed a new spirit couldn't do it on their own. The Mosaic Covenant is showing humanity in time, space, in human history. You can't work righteousness with your own hands. And in this aspect, it advanced God's plan of redemption. Man is confirmed in sin through a specific law in human history written by the finger of God. Allah pushed them to see their sinfulness and seek a Savior, the fulfillment of the sacrifices. And also, the nation and this law arranged the context for the coming of the Messiah and the framework for His person and work. Jesus obeyed the Mosaic Law to the letter. If the Mosaic Law is a republication of the Adamic Law, we see then that Jesus obeyed the Adamic covenant of works, which was given to man at creation, which explains why... He is our Savior. While we can be represented in His obedience. Why His life and His death work our salvation. Because He's fulfilling Adam's commission. How are you going to know exactly what Adam's commission is? You look to the Mosaic Law. Because it is a representing of what was given to Adam just in more detail. So, and good, we're going to have time for questions. Good, good, good. This gives us the framework for justification. As I just argued, why did Jesus have to come and live and die? Why did He obey the Mosaic Law? Because the Mosaic Law is a picture of the Adamic. It gives us a framework to understand the nature of sin. You can't explain the gospel apart from the law. The law still still serves to show our sinfulness. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the central, second greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law. Who in the world can say that they've done that? If life comes through the law, not actually, but typologically, if life comes through the law... You're going to seek a Savior. If 
you realize that. It also shows us that no measure of our obedience by the New Testament church can bring in God's blessing. Israel failed. That covenant is over. Something new and greater and better has come. We should realize that we can't earn favor with God by our, our, our obedience. Israel's disobedience brought a curse typifying how our sin brings a curse. Uh, Israel, all the curses fell upon them when they disobeyed. One of the curses in Deuteronomy 20, it's either 28 or 29, speaks of you know, a famine so severe um, that women will eat their own children. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Horrific, horrific stuff. It typifies the type of cursing, the type of horrific curse that sin brings. It typifies the eternal curses that fall upon us because of our disobedience. If we don't have a blood and righteousness outside of us to save us. So we look at what then happened in the nation of Israel and we see that's what we deserve. And that's what will happen except in a greater spiritual, eternal sense unless we are saved. Israel's obedient son brought a blessing. Christ came and obeyed the Mosaic law to the T, thus securing our participation in that blessing. That's why he's called the Israel of God. That's why he's called the true vine, as we've been looking at in John 15. That's why he's called God's son. And so, to wrap everything up, Conclude our series on the Mosaic, I mean on the covenants in general. Each of the historical covenants served to progress the accomplishment of God's redemption. The covenant with Noah gives the arena of accomplishment of the purposes of God. I'm going to preserve the world so that I can work and bring a Savior. The Abrahamic covenant secures a people and a place for the Messiah to come. And secures the fact that even though God's going to turn to Israel, the blessings from the very beginning was meant to come to Jew and Gentile alike. And the Mosaic Law brought a law, a need, a confirming of sin, but also the parameters of obedience so that the Messiah would be recognized when He came and so that we would see the accomplishment of His work and what it means. The accomplishment of this. The covenant of grace. All leads to the fact that the new covenant sealed in Christ's blood is the outworking of the covenant of of redemption. As I've argued all along, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. All of those things prepared for, revealed, the accomplishment of this right here. I said we'd have time for questions, but we have three minutes. Pretty typical, huh? Luke. Um, so you would say that 
yes. Yes. So with that, then can we conclude from that because it was typological that we no longer execute murders? No. <laughs> uh, that's um, no, we execute murderers on the basis of the Noahic covenant. Okay, how about adultery or natural law? Yes, I would say that. So it would be difficult to do that today. No, I would say that. <laughs> oh, you're saying Sorry, no. I would say no. Yes, okay. it's not permissible. Uh, well, only murder. I would say this: um, it's up to the law of the state, and. Um, it is not certainly not a law of God to execute that is still enforced to execute adulterers or homosexuals or children who disobey their parents. That is typical, topological of eternal cutting off from the covenant. Even in the Mosaic covenant, those sins, adultery, murder, um, there was no forgiveness. There was no sacrifice to cover that sin, which again shows it's not a covenant of grace. If there are sins that you can commit that are mortal sins, I think where Rome got that, um, it's that's where you see that. It's not a covenant of grace. There were some sins you committed that there were no forgiveness, which is why David's adultery and murder, um, God's forgiveness is so astounding. And why the New Testament looks back on that in Romans 4. Like, wow, he should have been executed if the Mosaic Law was followed. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it's cool to, to execute murderers for spilling I, would, I mean, I would argue that based upon the Noahic Covenant, yes. Ultimately, I would say it's kind of an issue of natural law. It's an issue of the law, the discretion of the state in many respects. It's certainly not to be followed. Like, you have to follow it if you're going to obey the law of God. The covenant is old. It's passed away. It's done. It's typological. That's why it was so rough, so harsh. Because it's typological. John? The new covenant has a sin for which there is no escape, which is blasphemy in the spirit. In a different respect, yeah. My interpretation of that passage is uh, Jesus saying, look, you, you reject the spirit. The spirit is a means of your conversion. Um, you can't be forgiven unless the Spirit works life in your heart. So when you blaspheme the Spirit, you're rejecting your only hope for salvation and there's no forgiveness because without the Spirit, you can't be forgiven. That's my interpretation of it. But in many respects, yeah, we do see echoes of it in the New Testament for those particularly um, who turn away from the revelation of God, uh, trample on the, the blood of the covenant, the Son of God, um, you know, even in First John, we're told not even to pray for such people. Um, that when they, when they apostatize, you don't even pray for them. They've committed an unforgivable sin. But I would say, again, because of our understanding of the covenants, it's not somebody who's in the covenant of grace. Because what is the central promise and benefit of being in the covenant of grace? Without which you can't be in the covenant of grace? In dwelling of the Spirit. Everything okay over there? Okay. Last question, last comment. Final word. Did you guys enjoy the, uh, the series? Oh, yeah. Kim, Kim. Okay, go ahead. So the Abrahamic covenant, they, uh, 
promises come to them righteously, right? No. Say that again. <laughs> okay, Genesis 15. Yeah. Abraham believed the promise. God counted it to him, right? Yes. In what respect? So they come up to the Mosaic Covenant, and now it's a do this and, and live. Did they understand, though, that salvation came by faith? Many of them, most of them did not, which is why most of them passed away and are unbelievers and were cut off. Only a remnant remains. Let me put it this way. You could be faithful to the Mosaic Covenant faithful and obedient and received all the blessings of it and yet be an unbeliever. You could be part of the remnant that was disobedient, like Daniel, or he went in exile, right? Maybe he wasn't disobedient personally, but he lived in Israel at a time when they were being punished for breaking the covenant and yet be a true believer. Membership in the Mosaic Covenant did not equal membership in the covenant of grace, which again is why we're Baptist. They're different. One's typological, earthly, and one is eternal. They come together in the new covenant, and it's all eternal. Does that make sense? You can be justified by believing, but it has nothing to do with whether you're being obedient or not to the Mosaic covenant. It accomplishes purpose in bringing the Messiah and in the Messiah, the true Israel, the true Abraham, all the nations are blessed. And that's how we become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, the true Israel. And there's always a remnant. And there's always a remnant. Amen. That's what a Romans 11, I believe, teaches. Yeah.